first day, and the rest of you as well. But for those of you who are new, you might not have known that the first day is often uh, one of the more difficult days. And um, um, with sleepiness, with restlessness, with the agitated mind, um, with a certain kind of culture shock, because it's such a different culture than what most people are used to being here. And it takes a while to get used to. And um, so anyway, uh, congratulations for getting through it. and. Um, and I hope that um, uh, tonight's talk um, hopefully is helpful for all of you in some way. Uh, the topic of tonight's talk is the seven factors of awakening. Now, Buddhism uh, used, used to not be Buddhism. Uh, it used to be not called Buddhism, the ism part of Buddhism that is a Western invention. Um, in fact, Buddhism was not even called a religion. It was called... Um, in, the, in India, it was called a path, a marga or a maga. And um, we're all on a path. We're walking this path of mindfulness. An important part of that path of mindfulness is the seven factors of awakening. And um, I'm going to lead you or talk you through a path through the seven factors of awakening. It isn't necessarily this is going to be your path. Um, so please be careful not to kind of think, oh, it's supposed to look like this now. But uh, there's great value in becoming familiar with these seven mental qualities called the seven factors of awakening. And as I describe a path through them, perhaps they'll become more familiar. And hopefully um, you'll find, you can reflect a little bit on how these different factors uh, have appeared in your life already, how, what you know about them already. So rather than trying to fit yourself into uh, uh, my idea of what the seven factors of awakening are, hopefully I give you enough idea of what they are that uh, then you kind of can uh, find, you know, how they've been true or how they've been active for you and in your life as well as in your practice. So Buddhism is a path. Uh, at the beginning of every year, the abbot would meet the new monks and nuns who had joined the monastery over the preceding year. At the meeting, he would instruct them to pack their bags he was going to take them on a pilgrimage to the holy sites of Buddhism. Knowing the pilgrimages that Buddhists like to take to the places in India where the Buddha was born, enlightened, first taught and died, the new monks couldn't believe their good fortune. The new monks, the new monks and nuns. And after their first months in the monastery, some of these new, nov- new novices, new monastics were bored some were unsure why they were there, and others were restless. On the day of the departure, all the older monastics in the monastery stood by the gate to send off the abbots and the new monastics. Leading the group, the abbot first took them to a hospital. There, these new monastics spent many hours visiting the sick. Then the abbot took the group to an old age home. The new monastics, many who were quite young, were amazed at the ravages of old age of some of the residents of the home. The abbot then took them to see a hospice. In the hours there, they spent time with people in all stages of dying, including a long silent vigil with someone recently dead. The abbot then took the group back to the monastery. There they first visited a monk sick in the monastery infirmary, 
the new monks were stu- struck by the sparkle of joy which radiated through the eyes of the old patient. Then they went on to visit the oldest resident of the monastery, a 96-year-old nun. The new monastics were amazed to see the love and acceptance the toothless, frail, and stooped nun had. Next, the abbot stood, took them to the hospice wing of the monastery. Here they were introduced to a monk who, only days away from his death, radiated a palpable peace that lingered with them for hours after. Finally, the abbot took the group to the meditation hall. When they were all seated, he said, You have seen the holy sights. These are the sights that motivated the Buddha to awaken. Once you are awakened, sickness, old age, and death will not trouble you anymore. So the holy sight, the path of practice, motivated by these very deep existential or deep heart issues that all of us, I think, have to face of very deep uh, issues of what it, what it is to be a human, the suffering of human, humanity, uh, suffering of sickness, old age, and death, and the like. And this pra- practice that we're doing here was designed to address these issues. It was adre- designed to do much more than stress reduction um, was uh, uh, designed to address some of the deepest, um, the deepest issues, deepest attachments, deepest uh, uh, capacity we have for spiritual liberation. And in doing this path, there is a differenti- differentiation that's made, a distinction that's made, that maybe uh, so obvious it doesn't need to be said between suffering and freedom from suffering, between suffering and not suffering, between being caught up, attached to that world of sickness, old age, and and death in such a way that it causes us to suffer more versus being in the world of sickness, old age, and death. No one's ever going to be free of those. But to be in those, but not be caught by it, somehow be free, somehow have equanimity and peace in the midst of our encounter with these parts of our common humanity. So that, that difference, that differentiation, it characterizes, uh, uh, defines, or helps us find the path of practice. And there's a variety of other differences that come from that. And um, uh, one difference is the difference between being asleep and being awake being in the darkness, not seeing clearly what's going on, not seeing what is most beneficial for ourselves, versus uh, being awake and being being able to see, have the clarity to see what's of real benefit for us. And that distinction between seeing what's beneficial and what's not is also crucial in the path the Buddha taught. And a very interesting uh, differentiation or distinction the Buddha made in these two regards is between the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. For the Buddha, the five hindrances are those forces of the mind which keeps us uh, from really being able to see what is our own good, what is, what is the best for ourselves and for others. The seven factors of awakening are those forces that help us to see what is beneficial, what is really for our good. When we're in the grip of the five hindrances, of when the grip of desire, preoccupied with desire, preoccupied with aversion, ill will, 
preoccupied somehow with uh, sloth and torpor, with restlessness and agitation, or preoccupied with doubt. And those preoccupations kind of obscure our ability to see and think and feel clearly what's going on. And part of the problem with the five hindrances is, is, the, is the way in which they keep us asleep or keep us in the darkness, keep us from seeing clearly. Um, so the, uh, in, the, in teaching of the Buddha, these two lists complement each other. So the, the five hindrances and then the seven factors of awakening. Seven factors of, of what keeps us awake, helps us to see clearly. The bridge between these two is mindfulness. There are a number of places where the Buddha talked about um, the path is to abandon the hindrances, practice the four foundations of mindfulness, and cultivate the seven factors of awakening. So those three go together. So in between the hindrances and, and, um, and the seven factors is the practice of mindfulness, which we're doing here. The practice of mindfulness is the opposite of being preoccupied, opposite of being caught up and lost in preoccupations. Uh, mindfulness is about being unpreoccupied, about being uh, present with a presence of mind so you know what you're occupied with when you're occupied. You know what you're doing when you're doing it. You know what you're thinking when you're thinking. There's a presence of mind, a clarity of knowing, oh, this is what's happening now. And my, my assumption is that for most of you, uh, there's been plenty of times today where you got uh, swept away in your thoughts, you got involved in your thinking, and it took a while for you to realize that you were no longer present. Is that right? And um, so in that sense, in those days you're preoccupied and you're not really awake, you're not practicing, you're, you're not here. You know, some kind of presence of mind. So mindfulness is cultivating this presence of mind, presence of attention, so that you know what's happening while it's happening. It's meant to be a very simple uh, capacity of mind. In fact, Manindra Ji, one of the great early teachers for our particular lineage, uh, he said something like, uh, if it's not simple, it's not mindfulness. And I know that I've tied myself in knots thinking that it's much more complicated than it needs to be. I have to analyze and figure out and go around and try this and that and eventually something's supposed to happen. And I've also complicated my practice by sitting and meditating, waiting for something to happen. You know, I'll just sit here and wait like a, like a cat at the mouse, you know, the, the mouse hole, kind of waiting to see, you know, where that pain's going to go away or that something's going to change. And um, it's very rare that I actually see something change <laughs> when I sit and meditate. Things change, but... Um, like I'm sitting with some difficulty or challenge and I'm, I'm kind of adding a complication of waiting for it to change. And then the bell rings, I go out and do a walking meditation, I come back and it's gone. Where did it go? I didn't get to see it change. And all those hours of sitting there waiting, to, waiting for it to change, waiting to see it change, was a waste of time. I would have been better off just being fully present for the experience. <clears throat> Two young people joined the monastery around the same time. The first one explained that he had come to experience the full power and luminosity of the Dharma. 
With a warning to be careful of what he wished for, the abbot welcomed him into the community. As soon as he could, the young man raced toward the meditation hall. He tossed his shoes onto the shoe rack, entered the hall, and sat down to meditate. Sitting with great determination and confidence, it was not long before an inner heat and light appeared. Spurred on, the new monk practiced with even greater fervor. The heat and the light increased in power and luminosity until, suddenly, the monk burst into flames. <laughs> Within seconds, all that remained were ashes on his cushion. So be careful what you wish for. When the second man came to the monastery, the abbot asked him what he hoped for. The aspirant replied, to see the Dharma in the ordinary events of life, in the food I eat, in the work I do, and in the faces of my fellow monks. As with the first man, the abbot welcomed him, welcomed this new monk into the community. Later in the day, when it was the time for the monks to meditate, the new monk headed for the meditation hall. Placing his shoes on the shoe rack, he looked down and saw they were not lined up parallel to each other. This in turn helped him to see that he was slightly distracted from the excitement of his first day in the monastery. Letting go of his distraction, he focused his attention to see more clearly what was in front of him. He saw that his shoes were old and worn. Remembering when they were new, he reflected on how all things are transient and how quickly they change. Soon he thought, I will be an old monk in this monastery. Soon he thought, I will be an old monk in this monastery. Reflecting how precious each moment was, he reached down and straightened out his shoes. Doing so, he saw that if he moved his shoes slightly to the left, there would be an easy space for another pair of shoes to be right next to his. Thinking of the other monks who were coming to the meditation hall, he gently pushed his shoes to the side. Happy, the new monk entered the meditation hall. So which monk do you want to be? Do you want to see the, the full glory of the Dharma? Or do you want to just see the Dharma in what you encounter? In the food you eat, in the steps you take, in the breath you breathe, in how you put your shoes in the shoe racks or your coat on the hooks. The Dharma is right there. It's possible to be so preoccupied in the coat room about getting here and doing the real work in the meditation hall that you don't really give hanging up your coat the same kind of attention and care that you would give to being here with your breath. When you're there, if you're preoccupied because you have this great desire for the, what can happen in meditation hall, you've been blinded, you've been caught up by hindrance of desire. It might be pretty innocent being caught up. Here, there's a possibility of being awake. Awake in how you hang your coat. When Adrian talked yesterday, I think it was about opening and closing the doors quietly up there in the residence halls, I remembered a story of Thomas Merton being asked. He was a great Catholic monk. Um, he was asked what he had learned in his many, many years in the monastery. And his response was, I learned how to open and close doors. 
Now, some people might think, what? Years of monastic practice and that's all he learned? What a waste of time. He could have been doing something useful. But to really, to see the Dharma, to offer yourself fully and be present, it's not about the door that's important. It's not learning the door, how to open the door. I mean, he probably knew that before he joined the monastery. But it's how he was in meeting the door. The sense of presence, the care, the attention, that he was fully there. That he wasn't thinking about something else he had to do, or wanted to do, or lost in thought. He simply opened the door. So, the seven factors of awakening. The bridge between the five hindrances and seven factors of awakening. The bridge between preoccupation and being free of preoccupation is mindfulness. Mindfulness is also the first of the seven factors of awakening. Mindfulness is a very powerful capacity of mind, but it's also meant to be very simple. It has an amazing capacity of helping you understand what is happening here and now. It also has a capacity of helping you to leave the present moment alone. Mindfulness in and of itself does not try to change anything. Mindfulness in and of itself doesn't need to have anything be different than what it is. Mindfulness in and of itself is a simple recognition, the simple offering of presence to what is happening while it's happening. So we're sitting here meditating, and maybe we're with our breathing, watching our breath. So we bring our full presence to the experience of breathing. Then we might notice that the breath is uncomfortable. Maybe it's tight and shallow. So, so then we have full awareness or careful awareness of a shallow and tight breath. Then we might have the thought that uh, this is rather unfortunate. I must be a bad breather. I must be tense and uptight. I probably shouldn't be at Spirit Rock. I hope no one's noticing. At that moment, when they're preoccupied with those kinds of thoughts, we've left the simplicity of mindfulness. Simplicity of mindfulness would simply know, oh, it's a tight and shallow breath. That's all it would do. Just, oh, just that. And it can be very liberating to realize you can just leave it that way. It's maybe uncomfortable, but you leave it that simple. You don't have to proliferate thoughts and ideas and reactions for and against. They can just be, oh, just there. This is very significant because it helps us to leave our experience alone. And a lot of our inner life, our emotional life, in particular, some of our tensions we have carrying our body, uh, sometimes uh, unfold in a very beautiful way when they're left alone to unfold or resolve or dissolve or move through us in the way that they want to move through us. It's especially true, I find, with emotions. To learn to get out of the way of emotions but to be present for them, to be present and not before or against them, to be present and leave them alone, allows our emotions to begin, with time, allows them to move. I've had many times where I thought I knew what was supposed to happen with my emotions. And, um, and then I was got entangled and trying to engineer them and fix them or whatever. And I've learned now through the mindfulness to have a profound trust to how these emotions move through me if I get out of their way. 
if I get caught up in them, caught up in story-making around them, then I'm not leaving them alone. I love it that the word emotion in English, or from the Latin root of it, um, comes from the word motion, move, and e, the prefix, means uh, to out, to move out. All emotions are in movement, moving out, if we allow them. So part of the function of mindfulness is to help us give freedom to our experience, help leave our experience alone. It's very, very respectful. In fact, um, I like the word respect as being a synonym for mindfulness because uh, the spect part of respect means to see, like spectacle. And the re is to see again. Mindfulness is to see again, to see more carefully, to offer our respect to our experience. So what's here? Let's look at it. And let's be simple with it. Let's just be present and feel it. Um, So what is here? There is our breathing. There is our body, our physical experience. There's emotions. There are sounds. There are sensations. There's thoughts. How to be mindful of these without being swept into them or lost in them. How to be awake while these things are happening how to be awake while we think, as opposed to caught up in our thoughts and lost to them, how to be awake with emotions as opposed to being pushed around by them or overwhelmed by them. That's really a big part of the task here. And one of the ways we're looking for our freedom is to be awake in the midst of these things, not necessarily getting rid of anything. And that's a very important, I think, idea in mindfulness, the idea that we're not trying to change anything necessarily, automatically, With mindfulness, we're just trying to be present and in that find a certain kind of freedom. So if it's not simple, it's not mindfulness. But as the mindfulness gets stronger and as we can be present for things, what what we're present for begins showing itself more clearly to us. We see it more clearly. And as we see things more clearly, it opens up, it leads to the second factor of awakening. And the second factor of awakening is usually called investigation, which is probably not an adequate translation for the Pali word vichaya. It's probably a much better translation would be um, uh, differentiation or distinguishing. Some people translate it as discrimination. Um, It means to start differentiating between the things we see kind of break up things and see them more clearly, what's actually component parts of things. So as we're being present, we start to see differentiating the difference between being caught up and not being caught up. So you're standing down in the dining hall in the lunch line, waiting for your turn to serve yourself. And you decide to be mindful. What's happening here? So, oh, what's happening here is I am... uh, upset about the person in front of me who's going so amazingly slow. And I'm really eager to get my food. And how could they go so slow? And you can feel, oh, I'm caught up in that. I'm kind of leaning forward. My mind is spinning a little bit in thoughts about the person in front of me. I can see that and I can differentiate between being caught up and not being caught up. I can sense, I can feel right there that there's a possibility of being either continuing being caught in those thoughts or not being caught. That simple differentiation is really crucial 
in the path of practice. Because then we see that difference, then there can be a choice. Oh, I think I'll just settle back here. I'll come back and just be present and let go of those thoughts, not get involved in those thoughts. And then the experience of being in the lunch line can can go from being unpleasant, because you're being impatient, to being pleasant, just being there and breathing. You're sitting here and back with your breathing. And um, you see there's a difference between uh, judging your breath and not judging it. So you can continue judging if you want, or you see, it's almost, almost like so clear. You say, oh, the mindfulness is strong enough. You see, oh, there's this, there's this really clear possibility here of not judging my breath. And making that distinction gives rise to wisdom. Mindfulness gives rise to differentiation. And differentiation gives rise to wisdom, to understanding. And why this is an important form of wisdom is it helps us to see how we can do things differently, how we can choose differently. We can choose between being caught up in things or letting go. Not so easy always to let go, but we can start seeing that, seeing that possibility. So um, um, so the second factor of awakening has to do with being able to make see differences, see, seeing possibilities. Very simple one, seeing what's beneficial for us and what's not beneficial for us. It's not beneficial for me to keep fantasizing about some wonderful fantasy, vacation I'm going to have, or sexual fantasy, or go on and on. I can see I'm doing this over and over again. I spent the last two hours here fantasizing. I don't think I need to do that anymore. That differentiation is the second factor of awakening. As the mindfulness gets stronger, our capacity to differentiate becomes stronger and stronger as well. One of the important areas of differentiation, which Adrian uh, mentioned this morning, is to be able to have the presence of mind to notice what our attitude is while we're practicing, attitude we have towards anything. Are we being aversive? Are we being desirous? Are we grasping? Are we pushing away? Are we pulling back? Are we attacking? What's the attitude we have to what the experience is? Are we striving? Are we equanimous? And to be able to kind of ascertain, have the presence of mind, the mindfulness to notice what our attitude is, to hold the attitude in the non-reactive mindfulness and presence first. Oh, there it is. I'm really aversive to what's happening. Okay, I'll bring my mindfulness to that. I'll feel it and be with it. And as we're present for it, it's possible to see, oh, there's a choice here. I can either live in the aversion, in the thoughts, or I can live in the mindfulness. The differentiation, the difference between living in our preoccupation versus living in mindfulness is a radical difference. The difference between spinning out our thoughts, thinking about something, and living in our thinking versus being mindful that we're thinking is a radical difference. Because if you're mindful that you're thinking, then you have some freedom and choice about your thinking. But if you're lost in your thinking, then you don't have that choice. If we're lost in our, in our aversion, then we're lost. We're being driven around by it. It controls us. If we're mindful of our aversion, 
there has, there's much more choice. And one of the places of choice is the choice to do nothing. And the choice to do nothing is one of the very powerful protective forces you have in relation to the inner life. To be able to pause, and in that pause, I'll be able to kind of sort through and decide what's the wise thing to do. So mindfulness, and the second factor is awakening of this differentiation, the factor of differentiation or investigation, helps us to show us how we can leave things alone, not pick things up. Very simple. So it's pointing to simplicity. One of the problems with investigation or differentiation is people can get too analytical, restless and agitated, trying to figure out. One of the forms of differentiation is to differentiate between getting agitated and not agitated. I think I'm doing too much investigation here. So I think I'll let go of investigating for a while. So the suggestion here is that as the mindfulness gets stronger, almost like a natural outcome of that is being able to see with greater clarity differences. And as you see differences and different possibilities, you can choose those possibilities which are wiser and more useful for you. And in the context of this kind of retreat, one of the very useful things to do is can be sometimes um, to rely on the mindfulness itself. Come back and abide in mindfulness as opposed to abiding in our thoughts and preoccupations. Just come back and be mindful. Here I am. Here. As we, as we start seeing that we have some choice to be mindful, to be present, to exercise, find our way on this path of differences, then hopefully a sense of energy or effort becomes easier, more interesting, more useful. And the third factor of awakening is effort, the factor of effort and energy. It can be a quite a beautiful quality because it involves, it can involve engagement, wholehearted engagement, be engaged in what we're doing. I love, I like the analogy of doing a craft where we love doing the craft, we're so involved in the craft that we forget time and we don't even notice what people are telling us. We're just fully in, in the craft. It's possible to be so engaged in the practice of mindfulness that it almost has that quality. Not that we lose sense of time, we're so involved and so present for here and now that uh, there's a kind of uh, wholehearted engagement in what we're doing. Um, one of the meanings of, of, of energy or effort is persistence, to persist in our effort, uh, not to slow down, uh, not, to, not to give up or not to stop because, you know, for any reason at all, um, but to keep it up moment by moment. Be mindful now, mindful now, mindful now. One of, the great, uh, one of the great keys to retreat practice is the continuity of practice, to practice continuity. And the analogy for this is that of uh, uh, boiling water. If you have a kettle and you're heating up water, if you turn the water on, for uh, heat on for 30 seconds and turn it off and walk away, come back five minutes later and turn on the heat again, for another minute and then turn it off and go for, a, you know, do something else. And keep doing that, you don't have, the heat doesn't stay on continuously enough to build up the heat to bring the water to a boil. So the same thing with the mindfulness practice. If there's not continuity of mindfulness, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the heat or the warmth of the practice doesn't really develop. So one of the ways to practice uh, continuity is to have a very simple 
and hopefully relaxed continuity of practice, not only in the formal times, but also in the informal times. So as you're walking down the hill to, uh, to, uh, to have a meal, um, how could you practice during that time so in a relaxed way you keep having a presence of mind, you keep keeping present for your experience, so you know what you're doing when you're doing it, as opposed to living in your thinking, caught in your thoughts and involved in your thinking. So to, some people find it very helpful to slow down, because if you slow down how fast you walk, that supports the possibility of being in the mindfulness, as opposed to being in the thinking. So continuity of practice. Um, as, as there's more, and I, I hope that as we differentiate more and see we have the choice of being caught or not caught, that there is an inspiration to make effort to be less caught. There's an inspiration to practice more mindfulness. So the differentiation supports stronger mindfulness, which supports stronger energy, more effort, and effort supports more mindfulness and becomes kind of like a, a, a loop that becomes stronger and stronger. Then, uh, the mindfulness of, uh, the second, the fourth factor of awakening is joy. The factor of well-being, or joy. And the simple way of understanding that is that when we have this engagement in our activity, when we're really interested and involved in what we're doing, um, there's some kind of, seems to be some kind of system in, uh, that there's some kind of sense of well-being arises within us out of that wholehearted engagement, like doing that craft. It's often said that this kind of joy partly arises out of interest. So we start getting interested. Oh, what's it, what's it like to be present? You know, I'm actually more interested in discovering what it's like to be present than I'm interested in planning 2009. And planning, for some people, is a big hindrance when they meditate. So there's a tremendous interest in planning things out. But to get get much more interested in, wow, what is going on here? Let me find out. This is really interesting. What happens when I really find myself fully present? What shifts and changes go on? What do I discover here? So so some of this well-being comes from interest. Some of it comes from being really connected. Some of it comes from being inspired that we have a path of practice that is meant to address some of the deepest issues, suffering that people have in this world. It's a path that leads to some of the most beautiful uh, possibilities of freedom. Um, It's a beautiful path to be on, a path of freedom. So to be engaged and start feeling a sense of well-being because we're engaged. One of the ways that this sense of well-being arises, uh, can arise sometimes, is beginning to appreciate the difference between being caught up, preoccupied, versus being mindful. And to being able to sense and feel the difference, to be caught up in desire, caught up in aversion. We become fragmented, we lose ourselves, we become alienated from ourselves, we become um, tense, there's a variety of things that can happen to us when we get caught up in aversion, desire, the first two hindrances. When we're not caught up anymore, it can be a relief. If we're not caught up, we're no longer constantly lost in fantasy, lost in thought, it can be a relief. 
And the Buddha encouraged us to feel joy or delight when we're not caught up. Wow, look at that. Didn't last long, it was two seconds. But wow, that was really something. It's possible to feel a certain, certain kind of delight in a single moment of mindfulness. Simply know, oh, I'm awake. This is what's going on. And then we might fall right back into our preoccupation. And then maybe a minute later we wake up, oh, I'm thinking, where am I? Here I am. And that, there's something very delightful about for a moment being free, being present. If we follow that moment of mindfulness with judgment or condemnation for having been lost in thought, then we don't avail ourselves to the delight or the relief, the happiness that can come from being a simple moment of mindfulness. So here is something that maybe, I hope, will make you inch you towards more delight. Um, If it doesn't backfire. Um, If you're lost in thought, the whole 45 minutes of meditation, you don't have a problem. You're not present to know you have a problem. So, you know, if you're not aware, there's no problem. But say, miraculously, halfway through the 45 minutes, you wake up enough to realize, oh, I was lost in thought. Wow. And then you plunge right back in for the second half of the sitting until they ring the bell. So, oh, I was lost. Now, as the mindfulness gets stronger, maybe you only go 10 minutes that you're lost in thought before you wake up. As it gets stronger, maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's one minute. Maybe it's 30 seconds. Maybe it's 10 seconds goes before you wake up and notice, oh, here, here I am, I'm present. This is, what's, this is what's going on. The more mindful you are, the stronger the mindfulness is, the more times in a sitting you'll catch yourself wandering off. The more times you catch yourself wandering off, the more opportunities there are to be upset. (laughs) If you only got wandered away once, you know, you know, you know, one upset, right? If you like to get upset about these things, but if you did, if you wander away, if you catch yourself every ten seconds, that's a lot. Six times forty-five. What's that? It's a lot. And um, so the idea being here is that the more stronger your mindfulness become, becomes, the more often you'll notice you're wandering away. And so the suggestion I have to you is rather than being upset by that, oh, it's not working, you actually hopefully feel some, oh, yeah, it is working. And rather than being discouraged, feel encouraged. Every moment you come back from being lost in thought, is a very significant moment. It helps us to decondition the tremendous drive the mind has to think. And it's a very powerful deconditioning. It might not seem to that in the moment, one moment of letting go of thought. But you keep doing it, keep doing it. And it begins softening and relaxing the grip the mind has, the thinking mind has on us. So 
please take delight in even a moment of mindfulness. Oh, I'm not caught for this moment. Moment by moment. Then, um, the next factor of awakening uh, after delight or well-being or joy is tranquility. And uh, the idea being that um, tranquility, calmness, is often associated with meditation. But it's a lot easier to become calm and tranquil if there's a sense of well-being. And uh, so to have, um, so to practice, find a way to practice so that well-being and joy arises in the practice. There are many, many varieties of joy and delight, of well-being. There's not a simple one. But perhaps as you find your way through here and you're paying attention to what's going on, you start noticing some sense of well-being that arises from being here and being present. If that should happen, appreciate that well-being. Things grow in, uh, beneficial things grow in our appreciation. And one of the reasons I'm giving this talk on the seven factors of awakening is because learning to appreciate the presence of the seven factors is one of the ways to feed them and grow them. Uh, I could give a talk on, this, on the five hindrances because it works the opposite with the hindrances. If uh, recognizing the hindrances uh, starves the hindrances. It's a beautiful thing. It's kind of like having a greenhouse. If you have a greenhouse and you keep it, uh, the curtains uh, pulled, I mean, curtains covering it so it's dark, moist and dark, the slime grows and the plants don't. But if you pull the curtains so the sunlight comes in, the slime dries out, and the plants grow. There's this beautiful thing in the human mind that in darkness, the darkness of non-awareness, uh, the unhealthy functions of the mind tend to grow. In the light of awareness, the healthy functionings tend to grow. So as we uh, bring the light of awareness and mindfulness on the hindrances, they tend to become uh, less. As we bring the light of awareness and notice and appreciate mindfulness, investigation, effort, joy, those have a chance to get stronger for us. And again, I want to emphasize that um, I don't have any fixed idea of what well-being or joy should look like for any of you. There are many different forms, but maybe there's something that you find in yourself as you're here that you really enjoy about being present, even when you're having a hard time. There's a kind of pulling back or not being entangled that mindfulness helps us to get, helps give us, and that lack of entanglement for a moment even can feel kind of a delight. So that delight then, or some sense of well-being, is a great foundation to help us become calmer, more relaxed, or more tranquil. And this is one of the important um, factors of awakening, is to develop tranquility. So start becoming calm. And so here, the differentiation factor is important and helpful, to be able to differentiate between being agitated and being calm. So as you go about the retreat here, are there ways that you behave here which are innocent enough, but actually add a certain agitation? And you could actually change how you are so you're actually calmer. Some people have such strong habits uh, they come to on retreat. It's very interesting to look and notice their habits. 
there's a habit, for example, um, I've had, I used to have a habit of, um, there's always something somewhere better to be. If I was sitting, certainly it would be better to be walking. If I was walking, I'm sure sitting would be better. Or if I was sitting in the hall, I think probably better to sit outside. If I was sitting outside, I think it would be better to sit inside. And um, so that habit was there. And that habit was actually agitating for me. I was always wondering, you know, always doubting. What should I do? Where should I be? What should I go, go on? The, um, there can be a habit of... Um, um, of deadlines. I have, to, I have to, everything's so important, I have to get someplace really quickly, like to, like to lunch. I have to be first in the lunch line, or early in the lunch line. And the effort to get there first is agitating. You finally sit down to, at the table and notice what's going on and say, oh, I got a little bit stirred up by trying to get there first. Looking around the dining hall, or looking around on the retreat center, uh, and, and looking at everyone and how they're walking and what the color of their socks are and might be agitating for your mind. It gives you lots of material to think about. Perhaps it's more, calm, more calming not to look at people when you're here. You can look at the trees or in the sky or you know, various things. But it's, maybe it's more, more tranquil not to be involved in the social world. So I, I was doing yoga this, this afternoon with wonderful yoga class. And I could see in my own mind, at some point with this yoga stretch where I could see the whole room, you know, I was turning that way. <laughs> and then there were a lot of people to look at. Well, I have permission to look right on the teacher. <laughs> but I could see, oh, you know, what, what would I rather do? Get into the stretch and be present or start having my mind looking around and studying all the different colors of yoga mats. So I could see, oh, one would agitate me and one would help me stay calm and present. So what are the things that can help you while you're here to help you stay calm or become tranquil in a nice way? Tranquility is a great support for being mindful. Mindfulness is a great support for staying tranquil. To be tranquilly mindful to be tranquil, tranquil and alert. Do you know one of the reasons why uh, Joseph and Jack bought the Insight Meditation Center at Barrie, Massachusetts? It's because when they went into the town square, they had, a, they had a, a column there from the long ago, the kind of the town motto, tranquil and alert. Isn't it nice? Tranquil and alert. As we become more tranquil or more calm, or to say it in a different way, as we become less reactive to what's going on, as we have an attitude that's more equanimous, more balanced, more accepting of what's happening, then it's a lot easier to become concentrated. And the sixth factor of awakening is uh, the factor of samadhi, often translated as concentration. And... um, I think of samadhi not as concentration so much, but as a gathering together, a composure, being, being composed on our experience. 
So if we're concentrating on the breath, it's not being up here in the control tower of the head and trying to have his laser focus on the experience of breathing, but rather it's being in our body and our mind, but with our awareness being composed and settled with our whole body, our whole being on the experience of breathing, a gathering together. So a gathering together of our physical experience, our emotional experience, our intentional experience, our mental experience, all gathered together on the experience of breathing. If we're sitting here trying to be with the breath, trying to focus on the breath, that's the intention to be on the breath, but we're thinking about what we're hoping is going to be for dinner, then our, our, our body is in one place, our intention is trying to do one thing, and our mind is somewhere else. What we're trying to do here with concentration and mindfulness is to bring the body and mind together so that body and mind are in the same place at the same time. If your, mm-hmm. mi- if your mind is thinking about last year, you can't go with your, with your body to last year. So if you want to have your body and mind harmonized and working together, it's a task. your task is to bring the mind here to where the body is. And one of the functions of mindfulness and concentration is to bring these two together in one place and then harmonize them, to unify them, compose them together. So we're composed in our experience. <sighs> concentration has a lot to do with a soft stillness, to have a soft stillness with what our experience is, soft presence. So concentration is not hard, it's not forceful, it's not tight, it's not contracting. Uh, concentration in, some, in the sense of samadhi is uh, soft, opening, it's expansive feeling. So how to have an expansive stillness with the breath? As the, maybe the, the belly rises, stretches and expands and falls. How to be soft with that? Soft attention, just feel it, be present there. Be composed, centered on that experience of breathing. As we're present for the experience of breathing, we might learn a lot of things about our breath. You might, for example, to use the example of standing in line for the meal, you might notice that you're standing there that the breath is contracted, a little bit agitated. Maybe it's possible to enter into the breathing more fully and let the breath become soft and relaxed. Let the belly become soft and breathe in a fuller way. It's a lot harder to be agitated if your breathing is relaxed. To see the difference between a tight breath and a relaxed breath has to do with the second factor of awakening, this differentiation. And then moving towards being more relaxed, sense of well-being with our breathing, to be still. Then the, the last factor of awakening is equanimity, the factor of equanimity. Equanimity is sometimes called a balance of mind, a non-reactivity of mind. And equanimity is kind of the perfection of mindfulness. When mindfulness is... Um, is really strong, 
And in, the, in abiding in that strong sense of presence or mindfulness, where the mind can really be present for things without being for or against them. No matter how difficult or unpleasant it might be, we're not against it. No matter how pleasant and beautiful it is, we're not for it. We're just balanced. We're there and present. It's a beautiful quality. Sometimes, some people call it, a, it's kind of a kind of a love, this kind of equanimity. It's not indifferent. It's kind of a love to really be present, have this clarity, really, really be present and here for the experience, for your breath, for your feeling, for your body, for the sounds of the room, for whatever's going on. And have, the, have a clarity or stillness of the mind or openness, kind of like the uh, uh, awareness is like space. And if you throw, throw a ball through space, the space is not disturbed by the ball. If a thought arises in the equanimous mind, the mind is not disturbed by the thought. It sees it arise. We don't know tendency to, to get involved with thought, to reject the thought. It's just there. A pain arises in the body, and it's just a pain. And the pain does not disturb the stillness or the quiet or the evenness of the mind. Be able to have this even mind, non-reactive mind, is a tremendous support for the mindfulness. Because then the mindfulness can do its work better. Mindfulness then can see more clearly what is here, more deeply. As we see more deeply, we can make deeper or more subtle, naturally more subtle differentiations. As we make more subtle or deeper differentiations, it allows us to apply deeper or more persistent effort greater well-being, greater tranquility, greater concentration. Greater concentration helps us to see more deeply again. As we see more deeply, we see the more subtler places where we're um, maybe not so equanimous. And so we can explore, how can I be even more equanimous with this experience? And so it kind of goes around and around, these seven factors of awakening, kind of a spiral of mutual support, go deeper and deeper, mature greater and greater for us. When I was introduced to Vipassana practice, I had done many years of Zen practice. And the great contribution that the Vipassana practice added to my existing meditation practice was um, not so much the mindfulness, but rather was the thoroughness in which I was, be, I was being instructed to practice. And my kind of great inspiration, my early years of Vipassana practice, was how to be really thorough in being present. In Zen practice, I had learned how to practice a radical acceptance of the present moment. And with that, I had to learn to be really present for what's going on here. But it turned out when I was introduced, when I learned from Vipassana, that my sense of being present was kind of a global or kind of little bit coarse. I missed a lot of the, the, the um, a, a lot of the small little movements of the mind that kept me caught up and not free. So I had, and the, and the Vipassana practice taught me to be really thorough, try to be able to be really present so that the acceptance practice 
could be even more, more thorough. So not to strive, not to be complacent, not to get anywhere where I, where I wasn't. I wasn't trying to get anything, but I was just trying to be thoroughly, fully here for this experience. So may you find that capacity, beautiful capacity to be completely here for this experience in the coat room, in the dining room, in the walkways, in the bathrooms, in your rooms as you lay down to sleep, as you wake up in the morning, as you put on your clothes, as you pee in your poop, as you do all the, all the activities here, and as you sit here in the hall. May your mindfulness become thorough. And in that thoroughness, may you have a good time. So let's uh, take a moment to sit and Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.